Or it might be to own a house on Nichols Street or Cornuda that has at least 20% paid off, so there's no private mortgage insurance and that I'm just able to pay off the rest of it. Um, or it might be just personal exercise, consistent exercise. Or if I'm thinking about a pastor being a Christian, a neighbor on the block, to evangelize effectively and see some neighbors repent from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. If I could just snap my finger and those things would change. Those are some things I might change. What would you change? What is your greatest pain point in your life in this season or current episode of your life? Let's, let's set, we're thinking about our problems now. Let, let's set aside our problems just for a second and think about our perspective. Because we don't just have problems, we look at our problems from a particular perspective. There's a situation, and then there's the way I'm looking at the situation. The way you're looking at the situation, we have a unique angle that we're, that we're looking from as we look at our trials and our situation. Now, earthly wisdom would, would tell us to consider our experience of trials a great sadness, something to be avoided, a discouragement. Earthly wisdom would say avoid trials and fear the unnecessary negative effect that it would have on your life. Other people don't have the trials you have. Why do you have them? Shouldn't you at least get, be in the same situation as other people? You're not worse than them, are you? You're not more of a sinner than they are, necessarily. The world might say that we should not care about endurance and maturity and completion, which is what this text is getting at. We should care about comfort or being at least equal to those that we envy, if not greater than them. We should be about fulfilling our ambitions for power, for influence, or for control of our situation, or approval, that those we want to impress would actually approve of us and like us. Earthly wisdom looks at the now, and so it minimizes the value of steadfastness and endurance, because it, it minimizes the value of eternity. Earthly wisdom is short-sighted. It pushes for the now or never it pushes the now or never syndrome. But we, are, we, are, we're, we, we should expect trials, right? Um, it says in, I mean, we know it's a broken and fallen world, right? Death has entered the world through sin. Paul said in Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Um, Jesus said, um, rejoice when people persecute you. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3, 12, um, or 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said in John 14, 15, and 16 in the last discourse, upper room discourse, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Life is filled with trouble. I mean, your, your life is basically moving from one episode to the next episode to the next episode of challenge after challenge after challenge, right? You're, you're constantly troubleshooting as you try to figure out how to navigate through life. Our lives are made up of trials and burdens. And here, when the world is saying, yeah, you don't deserve that, you should try to avoid it, God tells us here in James 1, verse 2, look at James 1, 2, he commands us, consider it... A what? A great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. So you should consider your experience of trials a great joy. So here's the main goal. 
It's really this verse. I'll just put it in different words. Shift your perspective. That's what consider means. Shift your perspective for full joy in each trial you experience. Shift your perspective for full joy in each trial that you experience. We're not going to verse 12, but if I had to add a, a thought from verse 12, because it is the context, I'd say shift your perspective for full joy in each trial you experience so that you eventually receive the crown of life. And we'll get to that in like four sermons when we get to, to, to verse 12. But the command in verse 2 is very clear, right? Consider your trials, your experience of trials, a great joy or all joy. That's what the it is, your experience of trials, whenever you experience various trials. So James is calling for a mind shift, a perspective shift, a mentality shift, a worldview shift, the way you look at life. If you're going to respond to trials well, you need the shift because the right response requires the right perspective. The right response requires the right perspective. There's a lie that goes around in this world and it goes around in your hearts. It bounces around your head. And the lie is this. If you could avoid trials, you will be happy. You want to go grab batteries while I do this? If you could snap your finger... And make this microphone work. Make the batteries come back, right? If you could snap your finger and get rid of trials, then you'd be happy. But that is a lie. We don't need Satan to tell us that lie, though he does. We hear it from others. We hear it from each other. It bounces around in our own hearts and minds from our short-sightedness, our lack of wisdom, our earthly perspective. So, so the reason why we think this, the reason why we hate trials, the reason why we want to avoid trials, the source of this challenge, it comes from our, expe our expectations not being met. Here's the expectation. The expectation is, or the thought is, that trials are more negative than positive, right? I mean, that's why we don't like them. If there's more positive than negative then we wouldn't mind it, right? The reason why it's hard to, to rejoice in our experience of trials is because our trials, we think, are more negative than positive, and so it's natural to, to avoid them. But James tells us here in verse 2, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, a great joy. Now, great joy could be translated pure joy in the NIV, or all joy is how it's uh, translated in the ESV and in the King James Version. Considering your experience of trials all joy doesn't mean no pain, no grief. In 2 Corinthians 6.10, Paul tells us that we ought to be grieving yet always rejoicing, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Even in James chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, when he gets to the main commands of the whole letter, verse 9 says, Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and turn your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So he's telling you to turn your joy to gloom in chapter 4, verse 9. And here he's saying, consider all your trials, your experience of trials, a great what? Joy. A great joy. He doesn't mean that your great joy means that there's no mourning, that there's no pain, that there's no weeping. 
Now, to understand what it means to consider it all joy, we need to clarify a few things. In the Bible, joy and happiness are not opposites. Joy and happiness, there's no biblical distinction between joy and happiness. Some people say joy is this deeper thing that you have in Jesus, and happiness is based on your happenstances or your, your circumstances, and therefore, you need to have joy even when you're not happy. There could be some... I could theologize to make that make sense. It's not completely wrong in some ways, depending on what you mean by it. But in the Bible, joy and happiness, there's no distinction between those words. So I'm not going to make a distinction between those words here. When we're saying consider it all joy when you experience various trials, we're saying consider it all happiness when you consider these things. Joy is to be found not in the trial itself, but in your experience of the trial. Remember, there's the problem and your perspective on the problem. Your joy is not to be in the problem in and of itself, but your perspective on what you're seeing the problem and what it's producing, what's happening there. John Calvin has said, there is nothing in afflictions that ought to disturb our joy. There is nothing in our afflictions that ought to disturb our joy. Now notice it says, consider a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. It says various trials, but who's, who's James addressing here? Look at verse 2 again. Consider a great joy whom? Who's he talking to? His brothers and sisters. Is that everyone in the world? No. It's only, who are the brothers and sisters of James? Christians, right? His Christian brothers and sisters. The, this mindset of considering your trials a great joy is only available to those who are in Christ Jesus. Only those who are saved. Because it will work out only for their good. The, the promises here that we're going to look at in verses 3 and 4 are promises only for Christians. So if you're not a Christian, you're not a brother or sister of James. And you can't consider it a joy. You should, but you should do that by coming to Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, here's how you become a Christian. Repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Why do you need to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ? Because you're a sinner and God is holy and God has made you and you will be condemned and damned for your sins. And guess what? You cannot be good enough. You cannot be religious enough. You cannot be wise enough. You cannot be helpful to your neighbors enough to become a Christian. God will never forgive you of your sins based on your goodness. You are condemned because you are a sinner just like I'm a sinner. And we will never be good enough. The only way to be forgiven and receive eternal life and to be a brother and sister of other Christians is to trust in Jesus. Why Jesus? God sent his son Jesus into this world and he's the only one who lived a life perfectly righteous that you should live. And yet Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. He's the only one who died for your sins. He's the only one who rose from the dead. Your only hope for forgiveness and salvation is Jesus. So if you're not a Christian... Or if you think you're a Christian, I'm inviting you to repent from your sins, to turn from your own goodness, and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Make him your Lord, your Savior, and your treasure. And you will be a Christian, a brother and sister. Now James says here, going back to verse 2, Consider a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Why does he say various trials? Because trials come in all shapes and sizes. What should we consider a trial? Well, there's various trials. Some trials are over quickly, while other trials can take many years. They can be more drawn out. Some trials are interpersonal, relational. Some trials are internal, just you. 
just between you and yourself or you and God. Some trials are social. Some trials are societal. Some trials are international. Some trials are familial. It's within your family or marital. Some trials are ecclesial. They are in the church. Some trials are romantic or sexual. Other trials are ideological and intellectual. A lot of our trials, especially as we get older, are physical. Trials can be emotional, mental. And all of these trials of various kinds are spiritual. And that's the point of this passage, that all of them are spiritual. And when we say various trials, I mean, trials can, can switch so quickly that you're in one trial into another trial. So uh, I can't remember this week, but uh, I was coming home. Actually, I was studying, and I didn't want to come home yet. And Francis calls me and says, you need to come home because the electricity went out on part of our house. And so uh, you need to find the, the electric box and the, the breaker, and you need to, you need to fix this. So I'm studying, and I'm like, ah. So I go home, and it's hot. It's heat wave, right? So I'm like walking around the house in the heat wave, and um, I can't find the box. I can't find it. And so I know where it is at our house, but we're in a, during renovations, we're in a different house. I don't know where it is. So I'm going around, and now I'm starting to get frustrated. I'm starting to get, I'm, I'm starting to get impatient with her that she's asking me to do this. So then I feel uh, impatient with her. Oh, here's, here's why I felt impatient. So I gave up. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go inside. I'm just going to take a shower. I'm going to tell her I can't find it. Too bad we don't have air conditioning in our bedroom because I can't find it. Um, and so as I'm going in the house and walking towards the restroom, it's right there. It's in the hallway. And I'm like, it's right here. It's inside the house. Um, and so, so then I, I felt impatient towards her because it was right there in front of her the whole time. And then, so I go to take a cold shower, and then while I'm in the shower, I'm like thinking about James 1, 2, 3, 4, I'm just going through the verses in my head. I'm like, okay, I need to consider that a trial of joy. And then I start having another trial. So it's first I'm feeling impatient with my wife, and now the trial moves to the fact that I was impatient towards her, and I made a snarky comment towards her, and I sinned against her. And now I don't want to ask her for forgiveness. So now the trial is pride. So I'm there in the shower, I'm like, ah. Oh. I need to consider this a great joy. One, I should have considered that a great joy. Now I'm being arrogant and proud and I don't want to ask my wife for forgiveness. And I feel pride in my heart. And now I have another trial. You see how like trials are just like, they're various, right? They, they, can, they can move and morph as you just go through. Within five minutes, you're in one trial and now you're in another trial. But our lives are made up of trials and temptations. A trial is a difficulty. And every trial and experience of the trial is unique. What's hard for you might be easy for me. And what trial is, that's easy for me is, wait, what trial that's hard for me is easy for you. And this could guard us from self-righteousness. I mean, I've been, I've done this, I've sinned in this way. I'm sure many of you have as well. When you look at someone going through something hard in their life and you're like, that's not hard, that's easy. Why are you making that such a big deal? And the answer is because it's their trial. It's not your trial. It's not a trial for you. That's easy for you. But a trial is something that is difficult for you in the moment you are in. And so we ought to have compassion for others because their trials are supposed to be different than yours. It's unique to your own experience. You know, in, in Jesus' parables, there's two kinds of trials. 
there's two kinds of trials that, um, that he unfolds. When he talks about the parable of the soils and there's seeds that he's throwing all over. You guys know that parable? In Mark chapter 4 and Matthew 13, there's four kinds of soils. The two soils in the middle of the story are the, God, uh, the, the sower is planting, throwing seeds next to rocky ground. And then the, the, the plant grows up, but it dies. And then there's another... There's other seeds that are planted next to um, thorn-infested grounds with other f plants and weeds there. And so that plant grows up, but it gets choked out by the other weeds and it dies. And then Jesus interprets what these things mean. The rocky ground is the... Because there's a rocky ground, the plant can't get deep roots. And therefore, when the plant springs up, the sun beats down on the plant, so the plant dies. And Jesus says, that's like the hard things in your life. When you get beat down by the difficulties and trials of life, it beats down on somebody that their faith dies. The seed of the word of God dies in their lives, and they find out that they're not really Christian. The other seed is the seed that falls on thorn-infested ground, and the, the trial there is actually the, thorn, the thorns are taking away from and they're choking out the other plant. And Jesus says that's the, the desires and cares of this world. So in this side, it's the treasures of life that distract you. In this side, it's the difficulties and trials of life that distract you. But both of them are various kinds of tests that attack your faith in Christ. So there are various trials. It could be pain or pleasure, trial or treasure. But all of these things are trials. Now, we're not masochists when we say consider it a great joy. It doesn't mean that we show no empathy to those who are suffering. But it does mean that we have a large and, I don't know, if you, if you look at this verse the way I look at this verse, this verse just seems impossible. It seems impossible. How do I consider my trials that are hard for me a great joy? This does not come naturally. But it does come supernaturally. And that's what God's calling us into right now as we meditate on the rest of this passage. How, how do we rejoice? Why should we rejoice when we are in these experience of trials? The short answer is that trials are about God. They're about your faith. They're about your growth. They're about your endurance. They're about your wholeness and your completion as a Christian. And so let's, let, let's, let's think about the main goal one more time. The main goal is shift your perspective for full joy in each trial you experience so that you eventually receive the crown of life. Now there are four, now look at verse three. What's the first word there in verse three? Because. Why should you consider trials a great joy? Why? Because you know something. There are three things here to know. Actually four things that you do know. And the way you're going to rejoice in trials is by bringing these back to your mind. So four things to bring back to your mind. Three things are explicit and there's one that's implicit. But bring, bring these things back to your mind. Bring these four things to your mind so that you consider your trials a great joy. Okay, you ready to jump into these four things? If this comes supernaturally, you need a supernatural biblical perspective that's filled by God's grace. So let's do that now. Let's look at verse one, or verse three. Number one, why, why should we consider our trials a great joy? Because you know that trials test your faith, or you know that trials prove your faith and improve your faith. Tests do th two things here. They prove and they improve. All right, you already know, you already know this. That's what, Paul, um, that's what James says. You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But knowledge is not enough. Your knowledge has to be not merely intellectual, theoretical knowledge, but practical, experiential knowledge. Do you know that God is good, yes or no? Yes. Do you know that God's good to you in your trials, yes or no? Yes. 
But do you always feel the joy in God and you feel his goodness overwhelm you so that there's more joy than, than not joy in your trials? No, we don't always feel that. Our, our, there's a, there's, a, there's a, a disconnect between our theological, intellectual knowledge and our functional, practical knowledge. Trials are the exercises of connecting what you have disconnected. God sends trials so that your theological knowledge becomes functional, actual, practical knowledge. So that it becomes experiential. And what is this a test of? Look at verse 3 again. Knowing that the testing of your what? Your faith produces endurance. So what is faith? It's not just faith in general. It's faith in the goodness of God through Christ to us. Do you believe that God is good to you right now in your situations in Christ? That's, that's, that's the faith. Do I, do I think that God is for me and not against me? Is God good to me in Christ and for me or, and, and not against me? That's, that's the faith that we believe, that, that God has favored us because of our salvation in Christ. And that's going to be tested by the trials. You're gonna put pr God's going to put pressure. Trials put pressure on that belief. Is God good to me in Christ right now? Trials will make you either doubt that or they'll strengthen that. Okay? So what, what, do, what do these tests of faith do? Let me just give you a list of a few things that, tests, that this testing does. Testing of your faith confirms your faith. It shows that your faith is real. It proves your faith. Okay? So if, I, if, if a difficulty happens to me like my pride towards Francis and, and God, like, so God's testing me. Do you really trust that I'm good to you in the fact that you need to ask your wife for forgiveness? Ah, I really don't think it's good because I really don't want to ask for forgiveness because I'm really proud. But I do believe that you're good to me right now in giving me this trial. So I'm going to go ask my wife for forgiveness. So if I go and ask my wife for forgiveness, and I did, right? And I did, yeah. I did, okay, just to confirm. Um, when I do ask her for forgiveness, it, it proves, oh, I do believe in the Lord. My faith is real. Like, I do believe that God is better than being proud. And if I don't do it, it proves that my, I don't really believe that God is good. I believe, I believe like sticking out my chest and, and just making her feel the error of her ways um, is what she needs to feel. I believe that. So, so trials prove what you really believe. It proves your faith. It confirms your faith. Not only that, these trials, these tests of faith purify your faith or they improve your faith. Because I was here with this pressure in the shower of thinking I need to ask my wife for forgiveness uh, and, um, you know, because of what I've done. And as that's pressing on me, it can actually push me to improve and grow in my faith in Jesus Christ. And I think it did. It's like the refining fire, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. What Tim Keller has said is that suffering produces humility. You cannot reach, reach certain levels of humility without suffering. Trials grow our trust in God because we see the trustworthiness of God in his word. And then when we lean on God and then God comes through for us, we're like, oh man, that was good. I'm glad I trusted God. And then you know, it's like you want to do it again. Oh man, I'm, I'm going to trust God again because God got me through this last trial. I'm going to trust him with this next trial. If he gets you through that trial, what are you going to do? Trust him with the next trial. If you, and, and, and slowly your faith is what? It's growing. It's maturing. Episode after episode, experience after experience, you grow in faith. It improves your faith. 
Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're saying, you know, if you don't, um, the, the, the rule that Nebuchadnezzar said, in, uh, the king of Babylon, when the, when, the, when the horns blow, bow down and worship my golden image. Well, these, these men knew, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew, these Jews knew that you don't bow down to any, anyone except God, Yahweh. And so as this trial was there pressing on them, they're like, well, we're not going to, we're going to obey God. Well, then Nebuchadnezzar says, fine, if you're going to obey God, I'm going to throw you in the fire. Well, God could save us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to do that. We're going to trust and obey God. So then they get thrown in the fire. And what happens when they're in the fire? Do they burn to death in Daniel chapter 5? Daniel chapter 2, maybe. Do they, get, do they burn in the fire? Yes or no? No, they don't burn in the fire. God saves them. And then they come out of the fire. What do you think that does for their faith? Did it prove that they have faith in God? Yes or no? Did it improve their faith in God? Yeah, that's, that's what tests do. They prove and improve your faith in God. Listen to Psalm 119, 67. Before I was afflicted, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. What was the difference? Affliction. Listen to this verse, Psalm 119, 71. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I could learn your statutes. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I could learn your statutes. Charles Spurgeon said, experimental knowledge is the best and surest. Experiential knowledge of doctrinal truths is the best and surest. So you have this testing that proves and improves your faith. Now, I was talking to one of the brothers yesterday and he said, what happens if I don't consider my trials joy? If you don't consider your trials a joy, you don't grow in faith. And if you don't grow in faith, you shrink in faith in Jesus. You place your faith in an alternative Lord, an alternative treasure for that trial. So if you don't consider trials joy, you're not exercising faith in Christ and your faith shrinks. It weakens. You don't grow spiritually. So trials are an opportunity for, it's a, it's a potentiality. It gives you a potential to grow. But our potential is realized only when it's connected to the right perspective. Our potential is connected to our perspective. How many of you are good at taking tests? Not to brag, but how many of you are just good at taking tests? Come on. Okay, a few of us. Like you just, like when you take a test, you're, you're kind of free. You're like, well, I know what I know. I'm just going to do it, you know. And you just do it. Whereas others like, oh, test. And they get a lot of anxiety about tests. Yeah, I, I'm, I, some of you, a few of you, I'm similar. Just like, ah, oh, it's a test. I, I know what I know. Just it's going to reveal it. I'm just going to do it, you know. Um, some of us are good at taking tests. Others of us are not. Are, some of us are better at doing the other schoolwork without the test taking. But what the test does, when you know it's a test, it applies pressure, doesn't it? If you know a test is coming, we're praying right now for Peter Jung, right? Um, all of us who are here on Sunday nights, we're praying for him because he has an exam to take by the end of next month, I think. And if he does, it's for his job promotion. So pray for Pastor Peter. But he has an exam. And so what is he doing? He's studying. Why is he studying? Because there's pressure now. If he passes this exam, this test, he could get a new job or get a promotion. If he doesn't pass the test, he doesn't. And so the test puts pressure and that pressure is pressing him into improving his knowledge, right? That's what tests do. So um, you, need, we need to, you need to change your, your perspective. And you need to, re, you need to understand that um, 
Everything you're in is a test. There's this scene in Spider-Man, sorry, I gotta quote it just because it's coming to my mind. Um, in Spider-Man, at the very end of Spider-Man Far From Home, the second one, yeah. The second one, so Spider-Man's dream is to be an Avenger, and Tony Stark finally lets him become an Avenger, and he's like, ah, he, he's been wanting to be an Avenger for a long time. Is that the first one? Oh, Homecoming. Sorry, okay, thank you for correcting me. In Homecoming, the first, the first Spider-Man. I'm not sure about that, but I'm going to trust you guys. I'm going to live by faith in my daughters. Um, so in it, he says, you know what? I don't, I don't, I don't want to be an Avenger. I, I just want to be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And so Tony Stark's um, really impressed with Peter Parker. And as he's walking away, he turns around and he says, was this a test? <laughs> and it wasn't a test. It was real. He, he was like, was this a test? Because, uh, you know, sometimes you, you're being tested and you don't know you're being tested. Here's what I want to tell you. Every trial is a test. If you're, if you're just kind of praying to God and you're like, God, is this a test? What's the answer? Yes. Yes, yes it's a test. You're in a test. It is a test. It's always a test. Every trial is a test of faith. Every test is an there's an opportunity to pass the test and improve and prove your faith in Christ. Yes, you are in a test. One of the reasons, I'm going to pull a side note here. Um, one of the reasons, you know, some churches have elder candidates. Have you ever noticed we don't have elder candidates in our church, like an elder training program? And the reason we don't do that in this church, and I don't recommend it, so if pastors are listening from other churches, the reason why I don't recommend elder candidates in churches is because it, it, it produces false tests of whether someone should be an elder in the church. You know what the test of being an elder is in this church? Your love for Jesus, your love for other members, your care for other members, your ability to teach other members and disciple other members, to disciple your neighbors. And guess who's responsible? Who's responsible to disciple other members? Every member, Every member is. Who's disciple to study God's word? Every member. Who's, who's responsible is it to love their neighbors as themselves? Who's responsible is it to bear other burdens in this church? Every member. In other words, the tests for elders is just living life in the church and being a mature Christian and then having an ability to teach. That's the that's one thing that's kind of above it. But other than that, what is the training program for raising up elders in a church? The church, you are the program. We don't need to have like, oh, let's read all these books and do all these things and then, and then deem somebody an elder candidate. Because what that does is it puts a different kind of pressure and now all the members are like, oh, Ross, I'll just use Ross as an example. Ross is an elder candidate, so is he going to be an elder or not? Now everyone's thinking about Ross and we've already titled him an elder candidate. Some of you might already think that he's qualified or someone else is qualified to be an elder because we put on him the title elder candidate. And all of a sudden the tests shift from real life ministry to other tests. And, and what, what God wants you to see is that the real tests is real life. It's not these artificial tests in your life that other people deep put on you. The tests of life for growing in faith is real life. And so we want to, to understand that test. All right, let's move on. So the first reason and the first way to shift our perspective is to realize that it's a test. It's a testing of our faith that proves and improves our faith. Secondly, um, realize or, or know that this tested faith produces what? Look at verse 3. Know that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. endurance. You guys see that in verse 3? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Trials build strength and muscle. Trials make you either bitter or better. Trials reveal what you truly value. Trials press you deeper into your values. And now it builds your endurance. 
It builds your endurance. So endurance is not an action for the trial. That's faith. Endurance is the residual effect from passing the trial. Does that make sense? So endurance is not something you build directly. What you do directly is handle the trial in front of you. So here's a trial you guys have. You're listening to a sermon right now. This is a test. God is testing how you meditate on scripture right now. Are you going to trust Jesus right now? For some of you, I don't know who, and I'm not trying to point it out, but there's crying somewhere over there in this corner, right? And for that parent, there's a test. What do I do? Am I going to trust the goodness of God? And then if you're not that child, but you're, you're a, a member sitting around them, that's a test for you. Am I going to rejoice in children crying in church while I listen to God's word and trust that God is good in this whole situation? That's a test, right? And, and, and believing God in that moment is all you can do. But when you believe, you're actually putting another, you're, you're kind of building your endurance capital. You put another, you get another, you know, another unit of endurance and you just keep growing and growing and growing in endurance. The only way you grow in endurance is not by putting it directly, it's by trusting God in the current trial you're in. Okay, so endurance is a character trait, not a one-time event. Endurance is built up or torn down by many events. You build your endurance, you build your character episode by episode, or you tear it down and weaken your character episode by episode. So endurance cannot be learned and gained by an easy life. No one runs, I mean, I remember one of our members in our previous church just decided to run like a half marathon one day, and uh, he did it and was super sore, but he, he was athletic enough and young enough that he could just do it. But nobody runs like, are there, is there such thing as a double marathon? Ultra. What's that? Ultra. Ultra. ultra? That's two? A day or two. Okay. Yeah, so nobody runs an ultra marathon out of nowhere. It's like, you know what, I feel like running an ultra, ultra marathon today, or if it takes two days, I don't know how long it takes. I feel like running an ultra marathon. You, you, what, do you need, what do you need to build up to run an ultra marathon? You need to build up what? Endurance. Endurance. Perseverance. And what does that take? That takes many days and practices of running and pushing your body to build up the endurance for an ultra marathon. And so, so endurance is not learned in ease. It's strenuous. It's trying. It's difficult. But endurance is not good enough by itself. So what if you could run an ultra marathon? <laughs> like, what's, what's the ultimate benefit of that? I mean, if I said to you, hey guys, I know you're going through a really difficult time in your life, but guess what? You get some endurance. You're like, I don't care about endurance. I just want my trial to go away, you know? They're like, who cares about endurance, right? I mean, endurance is not like, ooh, I want endurance, you know? Like, nobody is like dreaming about endurance, right? Um, but why is endurance good? Let's go to the next verse. Verse 4, so here's the third one. So trials not only prove and improve your faith by testing your faith, trials not only build your endurance, but what, what's, the, what's the good of endurance? Look at verse 4. Let endurance have its what? Full effect. Full effect so that you may be, and here it is, what does it bring? So that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So you need to recognize and know, remind yourself, that endurance effects maturity and completeness. Endurance brings about maturity and completeness. So you must allow endurance to do its work. You're under divine obligation. So don't waste your trials. Don't waste your tests. Don't waste your endurance buildup. Let endurance do its work. In other words, stop tearing down your endurance by complaining about your trials. 
by doubting God, by sinning against God, by giving into temptations to sin, by justifying and making excuses for your sinful responses to difficult situations. That's how you hinder trials and endurance from doing its full effect. Okay? You don't get the full benefit of endurance if you cut it short by complaining and sinfully doubting God. So if you get this endurance, what does it build up in verse 4? So that you may be what? What's the final purpose? So that you may be what? Mature, Mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now that doesn't, uh, the, the ESV and the King James Version says perfect and complete and lacking nothing. That's a good translation as well. I think they both get at what the idea is here. Maturity is a, 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 a completeness, an effectiveness of, of life where you are perfect, um, you're whole in the way that you respond to things. So when it says perfection, um, it means that you know how to handle trials when they come to you. Okay, you know how to handle the various trials when they come to you. When it says perfect and complete, the word complete has to do with like health, that you're fully healthy, you're whole, right? There's no sickness, there's no unhealth in you. These are the two ideas. One, there's a, there's a maturity of knowing how to handle trials and there's a health in you, a personal health. And that perfection doesn't finally come until Christ returns, right? Until we die. But we wanna keep moving towards maturity. Paul Tripp has said, God will take you where you wouldn't go to produce in you what you couldn't accomplish. So what is maturity? In, in a word, Romans 8, 28 through 30, you guys know Romans 8, 28, but let me go all the way 30. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8, 28. But Romans 8, 29 says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to be conformed to the image of Christ so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. All of the good that God is working in your life, even through trials, is so that you would be conformed to the image of whom? Of his son, of Christ, right? That's what completeness is. So what is completeness and maturity? It's being like who? Like Jesus. Was Jesus complete? Yes. Was Jesus healthy spiritually? Yes. Was Jesus perfect? Yes, he was. And so you are being made perfect. You're being perfected like Jesus as you go through your trials. So you need to see the divine intention behind your trials. You need to see the divine intention behind your trials. The purpose of perseverance is perfection. So how do we attain this maturity? So we think, you know what the common Christian answer is to grow? How do you grow as a Christian? Read your Bible and what? Pray. That's, that's what, you know, the song I grew up on. My mom would sing it. Our, our family would sing it. Our church would sing it. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. That's not completely true. Read your Bible and pray. Well, how, so read your Bible, pray, and then, up, then think biblically as you're going through trials and pray to God while you're going through trials and you'll grow, 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 okay? What does it mean to let endurance do its complete work? It means that you, let, you joyfully let God shape your mind. You joyfully let God shape your feelings. You joyfully let God shape your habits and your desires and your, your body while you're in trial. You let God shape your reaction and your responses to trial. Why? Why are trials good? Trials heighten spiritual sensitivity. 
trials heighten your spiritual sensitivity. Trials bring you back to think about God. And when God says consider a great joy, the reason why you need joy is because that's an exercise of faith. And your attitude determines your altitude, right? Your attitude determines how high you grow, how, 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 how high you go in your communion with God, how high you go in your worship of God. Have you noticed? I mean, how many of you went to a, uh, like traveled, I'm, I'm sure it's not the majority of you. How many of you have like traveled to another location for like a Bible conference, a preaching conference or something like that? Can I say a fourth of you? Have you noticed how powerful and impactful those things are in your life? When they're preaching God's word? If that preacher came here and preached every week, do you realize that it wouldn't have the same impact? Do you know what the difference is? It's not the message. Do you know what the difference is? It's going out there. What else? What else might you think is the difference? The ex- yeah, it's the attitude and the expectation. The fact that you pay money and you fly and then you go over there, you're expecting God to say something to you. What, the, whole, the whole process of, of buying your plane ticket, packing your bags, traveling across, and then sitting there, you're, the, the, the level of your expectation and your attitude as you listen is through the roof. And so your spiritual sensitivities are high. You're ready to receive in a way that you're not ready Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. In other words, your attitude affects your altitude. So one of the things I try to do here when John Lee is preaching or other pastors are preaching is I try to sit here and I try to get my mind in the same attitude I would if I was going to a conference. Like God is speaking to me. The Bible is being exposited. I don't have to travel somewhere to hear good preaching. I just come here and park myself right there and Peter or John come and preach God's word. Ben's going to preach next, next week or next month. Not next week. Sorry, Ben. Uh, I want to create another trial for you right now emotionally. Um, <laughs> But, but in that, I, like sitting there, just my attitude will, will affect my altitude, right? If you just come in and you're not expecting God to say anything, you're not going to get much out of the Sunday. But when you come and you're looking forward to Sunday, and I know a lot of you look forward to Sundays. I mean, you look forward to being encouraged by people. That attitude actually just, you get more out of a gathering. Okay, so, so, so consider trials joy. So the way to mature, to summarize, is by knowing the trial's purpose, testing your faith, enduring it with as much joy as you can and preparing for the next trial so you come at it with more joy and a greater perspective, a clearer perspective, a greater expectation. So here's a practical application. So, okay, PJ, how do I count my trial's joy? So think about the testing of your faith, thinking about the endurance it builds, think about that it's making you like Christ and it's completing you in Christ. Here's one thing I do practically. I would take, take this bulletin in particular with these songs from this Sunday and keep this in your Bible and pick one of these songs to sing when you're in trial. Almost all of these songs are good songs to sing. Father, I adore you. Lay my life before you. How I love you. Sing that when your heart is shattered in a thousand pieces. Just pull out the song and, and sing it with tears in your eyes. God, I love you. I adore you. I lay my life before you. How I love you. This hurts, Lord, but I love you. Sing, blessed be your name, or I love you, Lord. One of my favorites is in moments like these, because that actually just brings the trial. There's a song. In moments like these, I sing out a song. I sing out a love song to Jesus. In moments like these, I sing out a song. I sing out a song to the Lord, singing, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you. In moments like these. And it's easy to sing that when you're happy, right? But in moments when you are 
when you can't see clearly your way forward and you just sing that to the Lord by faith? That doesn't snap your finger and the child doesn't go away. But you know what that does? It grows your faith. And that builds your endurance. And that has its effect of making you mature and complete, lacking nothing. I need to pause and say something here because passages like this are dangerous for BBC. These passages are dangerous for BBC because we bear each other's burdens. And so someone might come to you with a trial and they're crying and they're just so discouraged. And so they talk to you for five, ten minutes, they're pouring out their heart and you look at them in the eye and you say, consider a great joy, my brother. When you experience this trial. That's not helpful. That's, that's not helpful in that moment. I read one counselor's commentary that was saying that, like, not to empathize and just quote this verse. I was like, this is a counselor's commentary. That's the worst advice that, that a counselor could do in that moment. So should you empathize and cry with somebody? Yes. Should you bear their burdens and just sit with them? Yes. But should you only do that for your whole life in ministry to them? No. No. You need to have, just like you have gospel intentionality with your non-Christian friends, you need to have um, considering trials joy intentionality with the people you're bearing burdens with. Doesn't mean you need to do it right there, but somewhere in your life, your burden has to be to bring them to whom? To Christ, right? And so, so be careful when you use this passage. This passage is gold. I, this passage, Maybe this one in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, which John is going to preach eventually at some point, are probably the two, two biggest, most impactful passages personally in my own life in Christian growth since I was 18 and started thinking about these things. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it's about trials and running or race, and this one. Like just trying to live out James 1, 2 through 4, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a you know, it's a silver bullet in some ways of Christian growth. If, if, if you just try to do it, but you, you can't like just force it by memorizing the passage. You just got to do it every single trial, but it can grow you. All right. So one more, one more thing about empathizing. Um, and Hannah's, uh, not Hannah, sorry, Sarah, Sarah prayed and prayed a wonderful prayer of praise. And she actually sparked this idea in me through her prayer. Her prayer was great and true. Um, she talked about God of helping us to, saving us from certain tears. And that's true. There's a lot of tears we would cry that we don't cry because of God's grace. But there's something else that's true with it. And this is right alongside Sarah's prayer. God also doesn't eliminate all tears in our lives. In the end, in Revelation 21 and 22, it doesn't say God takes back your tears. What does it say? What does he do with our tears? He wipes them away. He doesn't prevent them. He doesn't rewind it and put the tear right back in your tear duct, right? He doesn't do that. He lets the tear come down. And then he wipes it away. He doesn't erase the fall. He doesn't erase your sin. He doesn't erase the brokenness. He redeems it. That's what he does. He redeems it. And so let's go to it now. PJ, that's the end of the verses. Don't you have, I have one more point. Okay, where's the other point? So, so if you're going to know and count your trials joy, you need to know that it tests your faith. You need to know it builds endurance. And you need to know that it's going to make you mature and complete just like... Jesus, right? Just like Jesus Christ. That's right. But why, why or how do you actually count it joy? Because sometimes, to be honest, I don't want to be like Jesus. I just want the trial to go away, right? I just want to snap my finger and let the trial go away. Here, this is putting it all together. So this fourth point is this. Why should you consider your trial's joy? Answer number four, point four, because the value of maturity is greater 
than the value of the absence of the trial. Do you guys get that? The value of maturity is, greater, is of greater value than the trial going away. It comes down to what you value. The, jo the joy of a trial is like the joy of getting your, teeth, your tooth drilled because you got a cavity and they're going to fill it. It doesn't feel good, but you know the joy of not having cavity grow is better than having the cavity grow and not getting drilled on, right? And so it's the joy of getting drilled on. It hurts. It's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable, but it's a bigger blessing. It's the joy of going under a knife for a surgery that could save your life. It's not a joy to go under surgery, right, to go under the knife for surgery. But if it's going to save my life, that's a joy. Or for children, the, uh, it's taking the nastiest medicine to treat your sickness. The joy of getting well or the joy of having your parents not get mad at you for not taking the medicine, Right? just so you could get your parents off your back, that's a greater joy than not taking the medicine. It comes down to what you value. Two people can count the opposite thing of joy in the exact same situation. Several years ago, the late and great, second greatest Laker, Kobe Bryant, um, he almost lost his marriage. He almost lost his marriage a few, um, like in like 2012 or something. And it was because he put basketball as such a value that he was willing to sacrifice everything to be the best basketball player he can be. And so the joy of being the best basketball player he can be was even at the cost of his marriage. But there are other players who are not as good basketball players, but are still NBA players, but they're not as good basketball players. Why? Because they're not willing to sacrifice their marriage for the sake of basketball. And so they love their marriage more than basketball, and yet, and so they're not going to be as good of a player. It's the same exact situation, marriage and basketball, but depending on what you value, you're willing to sacrifice the other thing for the greater value, right? You guys get that? It's an, it, all this is, is it's value calculation, right? Not everyone values the same things. So people rejoice in different things, and they're willing to go through painful, different painful circumstances that they'd rather not go through to have what they deem more valuable than avoiding the pain altogether. And why is it a delight to go through pain? Because our deepest desire determines our delight. What you most deeply desire determines your delight. So what's so great about maturity? Being like Jesus. But let me just be honest. Being like Jesus doesn't always appeal to me. That doesn't help. Like, I, maybe it helps you. To be like, oh, being like Jesus, yeah, I'll take the trial. I'm like, ah, I don't want to be like Jesus. I just want the trial to go away. But, but there's something here that should actually give us more power than just being like Jesus. What's so great about being like Jesus? What's so great about maturity? What's so great about lacking nothing? I mean, we already have Christ. What's, what's so great about being like Christ? Here's the answer, guys. Okay, here's the greatest value. Nobody enjoyed God like Jesus. Nobody enjoyed God like Jesus. And the more you're like Jesus, the more you enjoy God. The more you're like Jesus, the more of God you experience in your life. And to me, that is the greatest value. Jesus deeply enjoyed the goodness and majesty of God, and so can we. It's better than a pain-free life. Because a trial-free life is a spiritually immature life that has shallow joy in God. 
Is there anything you want more than to deeply commune with and enjoy and love the almighty infinite Father who has perfectly revealed himself to us in the Son? Is there anything you want more than Jesus? Trials grow you by giving you God. Trials grow you by giving you God. The only hope you have to consider your trial all joy is to want God in all his glory more than you want to get rid of your trial. That's your only hope. And if you want your trial, uh, if you want your trial, um, if you want God more in your trial, or if, I'm sorry, if you want your trial to go away more than you want God, then to that degree you are unable to consider your trial a great joy because you don't want God. You don't want him that much. You want your trial to go away. That is more of your God than God. And when you want that more than God, trials are not a joy. They're all pain and loss. Christian maturity and perfection and wholeness is a deep delight in God. The joy is not in the trial. It's in the experience of the trial because the trial is designed to be an experience of God. Here's the bottom line. Your trial right now that you are in is about God. It's about you and God. There is no, there is no meaningless trial in your life. Each and every trial you experience is designed specifically by our all-wise, almighty God to form you and shape you and grow you to know and enjoy God and his people more and more. Every single trial. Not just the big ones. Not just the obvious ones where you could see God's hand. Every single trial. Someone asks, is there an alternative to trials being the way to reach maturity? There's got to be another way to get to Jesus. There isn't another way. This is it. Tim Keller said this way, to, to give you the opposite, the opposite side of the same point. Suffering gives you freedom. Why do trials give you freedom? It frees you from the things you thought you needed to have that you actually don't need. If you don't think you need it, then it's not a trial. It's not suffering. It's like, I, I didn't need it. That's no trial. Remember, everyone has different trials. But there are certain things you think you need, and the trial is challenging that belief. I need this God, and, and, God, and God gives you the trial to challenge that claim, that belief. I'll continue with Tim Keller's thought. It's pain and grief when it's something you're sure you needed. When God takes away the thing that you think you need, and you survive, you start to realize, wait, I can go on without that thing. You thought you had to have it, and then you realize you don't have to have it. Through suffering, you get freedom from the things you, that, uh, uh, through suffering, through trials, you get freedom from the things that had you around the throat, things that owned you, desires that owned you. You get rid of them. All right, let me conclude here. What's the main goal? Shift your perspective for full joy in each trial that you experience. If you could snap your fingers and change the biggest burden in your life, what would you change? God can snap his fingers. God could change it. Actually, God does snap his fingers. God does change it. God is actively attentive 
and participating in every trial that he designs for your life, for your faith, for your endurance, for your wholeness, for your joy in him, in the whole process and into eternity. Do you see that God is working in your life and each trial is custom made for you? Trust God and enjoy him in every trial. The mature, the mature Christians among us do this more and more, but even the most mature Christians fail at this sometimes, right? We don't consider our trials joy all the time. We fail. There's only one person who's always considered his trials all joy. And who's that? Jesus Christ. It says in Hebrews 12, verse 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Why did Jesus endure the cross? For the joy set before him. Jesus is the only one who never sinned, didn't, never disobeyed James 1, 2. And therefore, he should enjoy not only endurance, but wholeness and completion, right? But instead of Jesus enjoying wholeness of life, he experienced the horror of death. Instead of God's face shining on Jesus, Jesus faced God's righteous anger and wrath. Instead of delighting in the completeness and lacking nothing that Jesus should have experienced, under God's judgment, Jesus suffered the greatest lack any person in the universe will ever know. It says, verse 4, lacking nothing. Jesus lacked everything. When he was on the cross under God's judgment, there is no one who will lack more than what Jesus lacked when he was hanging on the cross in darkness saying, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That moment, that three-hour moment in history, Jesus experienced the greatest lack that anyone will ever know. The holy and joyful Lord suffered in the place of the sinful and complaining Christian. Jesus died for us so that we could be forgiven and receive this development in faith, endurance, and maturity. We will never, ever, ever face the greatest lack that we actually deserve, damnation in hell. Jesus died both for your joy now and into eternity. So brothers and sisters, here's my closing challenge. Be still and know that God is God. Just pause. Take a time out. Just stop. When you look at your trial, just stop. Don't just look at your trial. Try to look beyond the trial. Try to look behind the trial. Look behind the problem. Look, look to God and his purposes and his goodness. The Puritan Thomas Manton said this, in our consideration lies our misery or comfort. In our thinking, in our perspective. In our perspective lies our misery or comfort. In the way you look at the trial, that determines your perspective or comfort because that is revealing your desire. Every trial is important. Each test is meaningful. Even the small ones and the short ones, they all have the potential to produce growth. Let me just put it this way. Last sentence, okay? Let me put it this way. Each trial you have is a personal invitation from Christ to commune with him for your wholeness as he moves you toward our eternal home. Take that invitation. Commune with the Lord. Count your trials joy. Father in heaven, we know that this is an impossible command to obey on our own strength. Because it's impossible for us to want you apart from your grace. But we thank you that you give us truth. You give us light to see the glories of Christ. You help us see that you are more valuable 
than our trials going away. Indeed, you're more valuable than life itself. Whom have we in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth we desire besides you. Our flesh and our heart may fail, but you are our strength and our portion forever. God, forgive us for not wanting you. Forgive us for idolizing other desires, delighting in other things. Thank you for trials. Lord, we say thank you. We don't want to say thank you flippantly. Some of us are and many of us will be going through horrific seasons of life. Some that last decades. But Lord, we thank you that you meet us there. Grow us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.